Welcome back to another episode of the Young Black Suburbans. Uh, this is our first episode ever from my lake house. It doesn't get any more suburban than <laughs> than having a lake house. Um, but besides that, us being here in this beautiful location, I have a very special guest uh, with a very special story with us, uh, Miss Karen Brookins. How you doing, Karen? Good, Jim. Fine. Thank you. I'm glad that we can finally get this uh, episode underway. It's been months in the making, uh, trying to make it happen, us going back and forth, having uh, a lot of conversations, getting to know each other, um, which is great. Uh, But what we'll talk about in the future is actually a story that's been told quite a lot. Um, And a lot of people have similar stories. Um, but they don't uh, actually get a platform and a chance to speak out sometimes. And uh, what we're going to do today eventually is bring awareness uh, to a situation uh, that needs awareness brought to it. Absolutely. Um, but let's start with Karen. So, Karen, you are a Bucks County native. Yes, I am. Yeah, where'd you grow up? Born and raised in Levittown in, in Fleet Wing or Bloomsdale, as you would have it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so that means that you were in the Bristol Township School District? Yes, I was. I went to Clara Barton Elementary School and Benjamin Franklin Middle School. Okay. Woodrow Wilson High School. And then the parents split so that I got a little time in Delhi's and then I graduated from Bristol High. Right, right. Um, and how many years ago? <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to ask that, but the reason why I'm asking that because uh, context plays a big part in our storytelling. Um, and it, early on in your childhood, you met the love of your life, I guess you could say. Absolutely. Um, where, uh, where were you at in life at that time? How old were you? Oh, John and I were approximately 10. Right. We met at church, as kids in church, at the Salvation Army Church in Apple Tree, Levittown. Right. Um, also, I was a part of the Sunbeam, which is equivalent to the Brownies or the Girl Scouts, and he was a Boy Scout. Right. And so we kind of hung out a lot, like during the week, like a bunch of kids. We would go to the church. For church on Sunday, of course, and then throughout the week, there were different events that we would see each other at all the time. Right. Um, and you guys became boyfriend and girlfriend oh, at that time? Yeah, we actually did. At 10 years old? No, no. Uh, maybe our, in our tweens, teens. Right. You know, we, we started to like each other. We sat next to each other on the bus because the bus would pick everyone up. So eventually, when we were like 13, 14, 15, we would sit next to each other. Right. And, um... We started to like each other, and that grew into what we have. Right. Yeah. But at one point, you guys uh, weren't together. Yes. Um, and did you end up going to school or pursuing a career? Um, we, my parents ended up getting separated, and so did his parents. So we lost contact with each other. Right. Um, I moved away into a different area of Bucks County, he moved away. Right. And um, we lost contact. Right. Um, when did you reunite? We reunited in 2016. Okay. At, from all that time until 2016? Yeah, we, were, we lost touch when we were about 17, 17 years old. Okay. Um, we parted ways. Um, and uh, that we reconnected in 2016. Right. So, if you don't know, um, we're talking about uh, John Brookins, who uh, Karen happens to be married to. Um, and this is his story that we're about to uh, get into, which is kind of, um, it's, a, it's a serious uh, topic. It's not something that we want to just sit here and say, oh, um, something happened and uh, this is it. There's stages of the story. There's uh, a lot of things that haven't been told. Um, and we have Karen on our show. Um, 
Now, you guys got married. How did that happen? How and and all right, I'm jumping the gun a little bit. Okay. I want you to tell the story of John and how John uh, got into the situation that he's in right now. Sure. Um, when John was 26 years old, um, he walked in on a murder um, that it that was occurring. It was the end of the person was murdering her mother. And um, the woman that was murdered was a, a white woman who he was friends with. And the, the girl that committed the murder was an ex-girlfriend of his, if you will. Um, he was an invited guest to the residence and he went there that day to help her clean and get ready for her son. Her son was coming in from, as he did every year, he was coming in from Florida for the Christmas holiday to celebrate with his mother. So. Sheila Ginsburg is the woman's name. She's the victim. Right. She, you know, asked John to come over and help her move furniture around and clean and do some sort of things, uh, which he had done for her in the past. Um, and so as he walked into the apartment, this was occurring. Uh, the daughter was a methamphetamine addict, crack addict. She had some mental health issues, and she was murdering her mother. So he went to help her, you know, went to Sheila's aid, called 911, picked up the phone, picked up a remote to turn the TV off because the TV was blaring, snowy blaring. And long story short, the daughter ran out. And as John was there with the phone with 911, he panicked. You know, he said, white woman, black man, I've got to go after her. And he, that's what he did. He hung the phone up. And he left. And of course, he went after Sharon, and, and um, he couldn't locate her at that time. Uh, fast forward six months later, six months later, June of 91. The murder happened in January of 1990. June of 91, the police accosted him. They attempted to murder him. Um, Bristol Township, former Bristol Township police, okay. accosted him in an apartment and they attempted to shoot him and kill him. And that plan was thwarted when his cousin walked in, just when they were getting ready to shoot him. So his life was spared, thank God. And But they arrested him and they framed him for murder. And he's been in a state penitentiary, state prison, for 30 years now. Wrongly convicted. Um, and uh, the police officers involved were very familiar with the, the girl that committed the murder. She was an informant for them, and she was also sleeping with the head narcotics detective. Right. Um, it's fact. Right. So, um, the fast forward. So basically, the police targeted John, and they ignored all of the evidence that pointed away from John and towards her. Incidentally, the person that did commit the crime bragged to about seven people, seven other witnesses. Um, the police ignored that. They were also threatened. There were people that were threatened. There were people that moved away. Um, it was a tumultuous time. Right. Uh, Bucks County is known for racism, built on racism. Um, I don't think anybody would debate with that at this point. But um, with that being said, John was tried by 12 white jurors, none of his peers. Um, and the prosecutor, the prosecution just basically, like I said, they ignored all the evidence that pointed away from John and to Sheriff. Right. Um, now, he's always maintained that he was innocent, yes. that he hasn't done it. What was going on in that year from in between 90 and 91, when they had no one, uh, was he just around free and wasn't thinking about it, or? Um, he was around. Um, Sharon, he had felt like he had Sharon um, ready to turn herself in. She said that she was sorry, she needed his help, um, she was kept assuring him that she was going to turn herself in. And John was scheduled to move away to New York 
incidentally for a welding job and he ended up not leaving. Um, John was attached to her son, Ricky. John always looked out for him. Ricky was um, in foster care because of Sharon's abusive nature and she had left him several times with people and he had a bad life, he had a horrible life. Right. Um, and uh, John was very good to Ricky, Ricky was attached to John. So John wanted to do what was best for Ricky as well. He right. wanted to help and be of assistance and um, you know, in hindsight's 2020, should he have done more like in terms of the police? Yeah, that's the right thing to do. But back in the 1980s and the 1990s, that's when more African Americans were incarcerated. Mass incarceration was driven and prosecutors were incentivized because the more convictions they achieved, whether guilt or innocence didn't play a factor, but the more convictions that were achieved, the better they were. They were judged by that. Right. So it was a conviction at all cost mentality. And that's what happened. Um, and there's so many more wrongly convicted African-Americans in Pennsylvania state prisons right now. That's why you see Larry Krasner in Philadelphia releasing, you see, there's 21 exonerees now. And the difference is that he's a district attorney that's looking at these cases where there were corrupt police officers involved and prosecutors didn't do the right thing. Right. Um, where Bucks County, we don't have that. Right. What are some of the specific things in John's case um, that you think were uh, neglectful? You know, the police didn't really uh, do a good job or even, mal I guess, a, a malpractice. Um, well, there was um, witness misidentification. The only person ever to this day to ever say that John Brookins committed the murder was Sharon Ginsburg, the murderer. No one else ever pointed the finger at John. Um, there was prosecutorial misconduct. Um, there was also... Um, Tampering with the evidence, um, ignoring the evidence. Well, when, when you say tampering with evidence, uh, what are we talking about? Okay, so during the crime, this was a murder. Right. So a murder has a murder weapon. Usually, if it's not your bare hands, it's a murder weapon. There were multiple murder weapons at the scene, one being a pair of scissors that were embedded in the victim's chest. John's fingerprints were not on those scissors. John's fingerprints were not on any of the murder weapons. John's fingerprints was on exactly what they should have been on, which was the telephone when he picked up to call 911, the remote control when he attempted to turn the TV off. And earlier that day, he had been there, he used the bathroom, and there was a thumbprint under the toilet seat. But the interesting thing is, Sheila was not murdered with a toilet seat with the telephone or with the remote control. She was murdered with a trophy, which was broken over her head, and she was murdered with scissors, right. which were embedded in her chest. But those things were ignored. Right. Um, do you remember, well, not do you remember, um, but I'm sure, John, you have talked about the day that he was uh, picked up from the police. Uh, do you remember that story, how it went down? Yeah, um, John was walking through the parking lot of an apartment complex with a friend of his, and a gentleman, uh, a, a Caucasian gentleman, wearing a leather jacket, gold chain, he just looked like anybody, and he called his name, and he had a gun pointing at him. He never identified himself. He just called John Brookins, and John turned around, and he sees this gun pointed at him. So he did what anyone would do, and that was run. Right. He ran through the parking lot. This guy chased him with the gun at, on him, and then he went into his cousin's apartment, and he ran into the bedroom, and he hid, running from this person. A few minutes later, the closet door opened up. There was a gun in his face, and there were several other men standing there, one police officer in uniform. Everyone else was in plain clothes. 
they pulled John out of the closet. They attempted to, they threw, one of them took a gun out, threw it on the bed. They attempted to push John onto the bed and the police officer had the gun on him. And as they were pushing him, he lunged back to fight being thrown onto the bed. His cousin walked in and uh, said, what the hell is going on here? And they stopped and they immediately picked him up, pulled down his pants to his ankles, which he still to this day doesn't know why they did that. And then they handcuffed him and took him out of there. He went into the car with the gentleman, Al Eastlack, who was the one chasing him through the parking lot with the gun who was unidentified at that time. Right. And Al, and I can I speak candidly and say exactly what he said? This is your story. He, he said, um, and he was angry, and he said, you ruined everything, you fucking nigger. We were going to kill your ass. And he turned around, and John said that he just remembers him being beat red in the face, and he was so angry that he was spitting. He could see spit. And he, John said to him, why are you doing this to me? And he says, because you know why. You know you killed that woman. And John says, I didn't kill anyone. They took him to the Bristol Township Police Station, sat down and, and as he started to tell the police officers, the two officers that were there, Robert Potts and Rudy Hireling, the lieutenant of the police department, he told them what happened and then they immediately picked him up and moved him to another room. Then when they moved him to the other room, that's when they threatened him. And they said, Eastlack doesn't want one of his girls going down. If you give us the Jamaicans, we'll make all this go away. Now what that meant is, back in the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of drug cartel in the Bucks County area, and a lot of them happened to be Jamaicans. So the Jamaicans would rent out houses, and they would sell their drugs out of the houses. At that time, the narcotics detectives of Bristol Township and Ben Salem and other areas of Lower Bucks, if they had a drug raid or a drug bust, some of them kept the lion's share of what, ha what they got. They, a lot of them extorted drug dealers and so on and so forth. They would go into their homes. Countless people have told stories, their accounts of being extorted. Give me $5,000 a day, you go to jail. No warrants. They would just go in their house, take whatever they want. Um, and the Jamaicans were dangerous. Um, and the Jamaicans knew where John's mother and his sister lived. And John said, if I do that, they're going to kill my family. And they said, well, nigger, there's no hope for you. We're going to watch them put the needle in your arm. And that's where it ended. And John's been in prison ever since. Wow. And it goes to trial. Um, how long was he in jail before uh, his, uh, his date? He was in jail um, from June of 92. I'm sorry, June of 91. His trial was June and July of 92. He was found guilty by an all-white jury. Um, but the interesting thing is, John was not sentenced until June of 97, wow. five years later. So he sat in prison, in Graterford Prison, without being sentenced. No one knows why. Any attorney that I've ever talked to, they said they'd never heard of that. And there's no reasoning. The only thing that we could think is that they wanted to eat up the time for him to appeal. You know, without sentencing, what are you appealing? You're not sentenced yet. Right. So it's kind of like they threw him in jail, locked him up and threw away the key and forgot about him for five years. Um, and that's pretty much where that went. One thing I do want to say with John's conviction is that during the trial, John was assured that he would have his day in court and that he would have his opportunity for the jury to hear exactly what happened when he walked in the house that day. The last day of the trial, the court-appointed attorney that he had, his name is Mark Rickles. Mark Rickles announced, my client will not be taking the stand. He has nothing to offer. There was, another, there was a key witness sitting in the hallway waiting to be called who saw Sharon bloody that night at the apartment complex. And there was another witness who was Sharon's boyfriend at the time who was at home waiting for a phone call from Mark Rickles to appear at Bucks County to give his testimony that Sharon left the house that day saying, 
I'm going to go to my mom's to get the money she owed me. Neither of those witnesses were called. There were several witnesses that, that did go on the stand that told uh, Sharon bragging about killing her mother, threatening them, and that she was going to kill them because she killed her mother. Different accounts of different people. But they were all written off because they were drug addicts and prostitutes. But the interesting thing is, their testimony was not good enough because they were drug addicts and prostitutes. But Sharon was a drug addict and prostitute. And she, in fact, was the only person, like I said, that ever named John Brookins for this crime. Hmm. She didn't even take the stand. Wow. Um, so he ultimately, he gets convicted. Yes. Um, he gets sentenced. Uh, what was the sentence? Life without parole. Life without parole. And so at that point, does he think, uh, I have to fight this or that I have to uh, figure out a way on how to get people to believe my story? Okay, so honestly speaking, I'll tell you, um, there's many facets of John's story of what happened to him and there's that, a lot of sadness. Um, when John was arrested, if you can imagine being arrested as an innocent person, John was facing the death penalty. They were trying to give him the death penalty. So they tacked on a robbery charge because if you kill someone in the commission of commission of a robbery, that is a capital murder and that's punishable by death in Pennsylvania at that time. But during the God Sorry, bless you. I didn't take my allergy medicine. During, the, during that time, um, the robbery charge was thrown out so that the death penalty then was off the table. But Again, while John was in prison, he was in prison um, for something he didn't do. He was facing the death penalty. There were threats against his family. There were police officers that were sitting out in front of his mom's house. Um, the other thing is that the attorney that represented him, the court-appointed attorney, he was also the police solicitor for the Bristol Township Police, right. which means that he worked for the Bristol Township Police. The very same officers that handled John's case and presented the case to the district attorney or the prosecutors. For the same people that you say uh, did corrupt things. Absolutely. Okay. Um, now, the interesting thing uh, to me that stands out is that you were not married to John during this whole time. No. Uh, were you in contact with him during this period? No, no, I wasn't. Um, I I actually didn't know much about, for years, didn't know much about what happened. Yeah. I had moved away. I, mean, I had gotten married. Did you hear stories? I did later on. Okay. I heard stories. As soon as I heard that John Brookings was in prison for murder, the first thing that I said was, no way, John Brookings didn't do that. He's not capable of doing that. He's not that kind of person. And in the back of my mind, I believe, like everyone believes, pretty much, wow, they must really have some some evidence on him or whatever, but it'll get straightened out, yeah. kind of like. And I just felt that way. Fast forward to 2016, now I'm jumping the gun, but his sister reached out to me and he was up for commutation. So commutation is a form of people presenting to the pardon board the opportunity to come home and be on parole for the rest of your life. So he was he was eligible for that, so he applied for it, and he needed letters from people, character letters. And his sister reached out to me because she said, you've known him for so long when you were kids, maybe you could talk about what you remember about John as a kid. Yeah. And I said, oh my God. And then when I talked to her about John, she said, you know, Karen, let John talk to you, I'm sure, you know, let him talk to you about all the details. Because I wanted to know, because I couldn't understand why a person like him would be in prison for murder. Yeah. And so I wrote the letter about what I remembered, and she called me after she received it. She was crying. She was you know, actually, like, happy and, and, and that I could remember so much about John. And she said, John wants to know if I can give him your phone number. 
And I said, absolutely. So John reached out to me and I ended up visiting him eventually and it's like basically like a week or two later and the rest is history. Right. But you know, once I went into the prison and I saw him, he was this same mild mannered, sweet person, peaceful person that he always was. Right. And I put I when I left him that day, I was just like, how could this be? How could someone be in prison and not do this? Right. So I wanted to dig in and I wanted to know the facts. Just a regular person right. like you, yeah. right? So I asked him after a couple of visits, I said, John, what's going on? And he was like, I have a habeas corpus written. That didn't mean anything to me. What's that? I don't know. And I said, why are you here though? You're innocent. Why, is, why are you here? So he said, well, the best thing I can say is just read about it, but I said, okay, we'll start sending them to me. So he did. So I would spend my weekends reading his transcripts and I started to see inconsistencies and I started to put together names and all kinds of different things and then things weren't adding up. Just a regular person. Yeah. And those books turned into... Witnesses, binders, all kinds of things. And that's what grew into this. Right. Um, sorry. <laughs> no, no. Um, so you start doing all this. You start building a relationship with John. Um, are you dating him actively while he's in jail? How, how does that work for us? <laughs> what? I, 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 yeah, I mean, he's already in jail. Yeah. You guys reconnect through a phone call. You start doing uh, a little research for him, I guess, you know, trying to help him out. How do you get from that to being married? Okay, so I, I believe that God does things for a reason, right? So I was married twice in this time frame. And it was years that we were apart. And um, so I have this is children. your third marriage. This is my third marriage. Okay. Three times a charm. Yeah, right? that's Three it. Three times a charm. Right? That's it. So I was at the point in my life I wasn't dating. I was on my own. I was single. I, I just left a really super bad relationship, and I was just like, I'm done. I'm just gonna work and make money and enjoy my life, right? And I said, God, just bring me a companion that I could spend the weekends with and just have fun. I still wanted to have my own place and be, do my own thing, right? but I just wanted to have a companion on the weekend, somebody I could do things with, right? And then this happened. Maybe about six months or so after I said that. The letter. The sister asked me to write the letter and then it grew into this. I will tell you this. You know, when you're younger, I mean, you marry, if you marry, you're supposed to marry for love, right? And sometimes you do when you grow apart, different things happen and you don't know how to handle them as right. young, young, growing up and children involved and so on and so forth. But I did marry two decent men, two, two good men in my lifetime um, that um, I'm still friendly with, like, you know, friendly with, with the kids and, and everything and the families. But with John, this relationship has been the most beautiful experience that I've ever known. Um, when they say kindred souls or soulmates, yeah, I, I can tell you what he's thinking. Right. I feed off his energy. He feeds off my energy. It's just a, the most beautiful the communication. John is right. so awesome at communicating. Like you understand how some people could say this is not conventional. This right. is. Uh, yeah. uh, do you have people in your life that uh, you have to uh, hear that from? I did in the beginning. Yeah. A lot more in the beginning, like Karen. You know, you may he may never come home. What are you gonna do? Are you never gonna have sex again? Like, what are you gonna do? Right. right. Really. Right. right. And you know, I say. I believe he's coming home, number one. And for me, sex is on a different level. 
because there's communication. I before COVID, I visited John every single week for years. Right. Every week, once a week. Right. And I would sit with him for five to six hours. I would be there the first thing in the morning, and I would leave when they said leave. Right. And we would sit there and we would eat together and we would play cards and we would we would talk and we would communicate. And the inspiration that I would get from him and that I would give him too. I, I gave him the same. There's nothing that compares to that. Right. Nothing. The mutual respect and and love and it's it's fulfilling to yeah. me. I would I would honestly say the feelings that, that we have for each other are so genuine and so real, um, I wouldn't trade them for right, anything. Right. It has been difficult 19 months I haven't seen them. Right. Not since March 12th of last year. Um, hopefully in July they're gonna open up visits and I'm hearing that it's gonna be for one hour once a month. Wow. Um, so right now we talk every day a few times a day. We do video visits, they have some video visits. Okay. So I do a couple of those a month for 45 minutes each. And um, we're just working through that, just right. missing each other. And yeah, it has to be terribly hard. It's very hard. Um, very hard. You know, how long have you been married? We got married November of 19, I'm sorry, November 2018. 2018, mm -hmm. so you've been married for three years three now? Years. Nice. Uh, but he's been incarcerated since 91? since 1991 um it's been 30 years wow he just spent his 30th birthday in prison wow because he was 26 when he went in and he's 57 now wow and i want to say john has never been written up right once. yeah so it, that's what i wanted to talk about a little bit his character uh since he's been incarcerated can't be easy knowing that there's a chance that he might not ever come home um, so there's a little adjustment period where you have to figure out what you're going to do. Um, how has John's character been since he's been in jail? I will say, John, me knowing John when we were 10, and me knowing John at 57, he carries the same peacefulness. He was always a good guy. He was always mild-mannered. John was always built. Uh -huh. But John didn't fight. John was not violent. Um, a, a perfect scenario. Growing up, you know, the Bloomsdale and the Terrace and Pacific Avenue, they would play football. The These guys are different would, sections. Different sections of Bristol. Of Bristol. Bristol yeah. Township and Bristol Borough. And they would the boys would get together and play football against each other. And everybody wanted John on the team because he was big, you know. Yeah. John would get on the team, but he wouldn't like hit anybody. <laughs> right, and they were right. like, Why Brookins, why? He said, why do I do that when I can just take the ball? I don't have to hurt anybody. He didn't cause fights, you know. He was just that kind of guy then, and he's that same kind of guy now. Right. Um, he teaches yoga, health and wellness, and meditation. And he has helped literally more than a thousand people with their eating programs, eating for health. Um, fitness programs outside of prison, inside of prison, the guards. I have had people, I have gone to exoneration rallies because I'm a part of a few organizations, and I have had strangers that come up to me, guys, they say, you're John Brooker's wife? I'm like, yeah, what a wonderful man he is. One guy said, John Brookins is a man of integrity even when nobody's watching. Another man named Charles Johnny Barry said to me, I was in bed and I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't walk for days. John got a cart, wheeled it, got the guards to give him a cart, wheeled it down to my cell, put me on the cart, took me to the gym and helped me to do stretches. He said, I can walk today because of John Brookings. Right. So there's I, I countless stories yeah. of John and his integrity and his personality and his character. So it's not just me as white that you would expect to say these things. Right. It's all different people from all walks of life. Yeah. I have guards that were formerly that formerly worked in the prisons reach out to me on social media and say, "Do you know what a wonderful man your husband is?" Right. And then they tell me their stories. Um, and I hear that he's quite the weightlifter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you know, in some of my research, um, in some of the literature and things that you gave me, I uh, found out that he was a prolific uh, power lifter. Yeah. 
Yeah, back in the back in the '90s, early '80s, Greaterford Prison. He was actually instrumental in being a part of a traveling team. They used to be able to travel and have competitions. This is a part that John doesn't like to talk about because he doesn't want to be looked at as a power lifter, just like you don't want to be looked at as somebody who played cards or dominoes in prison, right? <laughs> you want to be looked at as a person for studying and using the brain, which is, he does all of that. Yeah. But to help him in the beginning years, I tapped into that a little bit earlier, and I'm glad you said you brought this up. In the beginning years, this was John's way of relieving the enormous amount of stress that he had and not losing his mind is the power lifting. John became the, I think it was the fourth strongest man in his weight class. And he won several awards and trophies. Um, he, I bench pressed 768 pounds, I believe. Right. Um, he's super strong. And was it uh, ESPN? did a, a story in, that's right. on him yeah that's right um sports behind bars right was the name of the show and charles dutton uh -huh. the rock right he narrated right 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 yeah, rock, so he yeah. talked about different sporting events that were held inside of different prisons and john was featured on there um and uh they actually showed him right working out um, one of the things I do want to also mention yeah. um, about the difficulties of being in prison, when John was first incarcerated, he suffered from tremors mm -hmm. and nervousness and speech impediments because he was petrified. He was in prison facing death. So they gave him medications, psychotropic medications to help him to deal. And this went on for maybe about five years. Right. And one day he realized he couldn't walk down the steps without being dizzy. He couldn't hold a spoon without shaking. He was just a fragment of a man. And he woke up one morning and said, I'm dying in here. I've got to, if I'm going to live and fight my way out of here, I have to get off these drugs. So little by little, he knew enough to wean himself. And over a period of a month or two, he had weaned himself totally from these medications on his own. Right, right. And then he empowered himself to get his GED, to finish, to get his GED, to get a paralegal degree, uh, health and wellness yoga. He's an avid poet. Um, and now he's getting his master's trainer certification with ISSA in California. Yeah. He has written his own habeas corpus. He has fought his case until I got involved on his own right and that's tremendous right right jordan can you pass me those pictures just so they can get a picture of who we're talking about and so this is you and john yeah this is a picture of john and i and a, a young girl at 17 named anushka from california she did this for us right yeah she did this this uh picture for us cool yeah and we have this one yeah which i think is the cooler one <laughs> <laughs> that solidifies it right yeah this so, is this puts the icing on the cake yeah here. yeah this is 2018 obviously and we had a friend that blew up a picture of us and, and this was our wedding gift from her nice um how was this day do you remember? This was great. This was the very first wedding ever held at SCI Phoenix. John was moved. Everyone was moved from Graterford. They closed Graterford down in 2017, 17, 18. And we were the first ones married wow. to get permission to get married. So. Nice. And you, you get married. Um, <laughs> and Joe, it, it has to be a different situation. Um, the honeymoon is a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah. How, how how is the can I can we go into how a wedding in jail goes? Sure, sure. So, you know, I I had to get approval for my dress. Or prison? I, Maybe I prison. should say prison. Yeah, prison. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But uh, I had to get approval for the dress. What kind of dress could I wear? Um, now, three flower bouquet. So there were certain criteria um, 
you were we were allowed I believe four people to be there with us um, we had to get an outside um, pastor to marry us um, she does traveling weddings in the prisons so that's what she does for a living okay. if anybody's looking for one let me know name's Debbie she's pretty cool and you know she does all the marriage license and everything with you you have to get permission from the counselors you have to get permission from the warden which is the superintendent um, if you go through an an arduous process before you can even get to that point right and we had gone through the process about a year before we got the approval right um, but then once you go I went through the metal so detector took you a year yeah to get approved yeah okay yeah. and probably most of that was because of the change of prisons also okay and so yeah my daughter was there okay his niece was there I go through the metal detector, same thing that you do when you go for a visit. Right. And um, we went into the visiting room and, and he came in in his uniform. They're not allowed to wear anything other than your uniform. Right. And uh, we exchanged our vows, which we wrote on our own. And then the officiant, you know, did the normal IDs. And we were out to kiss, you know, and hug. And then we spent about an hour together taking photographs. Um, John is the NAACP Health and Wellness Chairman, so we were given the opportunity to have a lot of photographs. Okay. So we got a lot. I have a nice photo album, which was nice. Um, and then I was I had to leave because they were starting visits that night, so I had to leave for about an hour and then come back. So I left, changed my clothes, and went back for the visit until nine o'clock that night. And then his niece and I went and had pizza afterwards and a martini. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's how we celebrated together. Wow. Um, but my my soul has been forever changed by this this marriage. And you said something earlier about you know that maybe John may never get out. I never think that. I know that God has a purpose for this, and I truly believe in my heart that God brought us together because John's coming home. And he's using me as an instrument to be John's voice and to be his eyes and his ears and to bring him out of there. One of the things that John told me the very first time I visited him was, I've only prayed for two things, he said. I prayed that, of course, for my freedom. But I also prayed that I would see you one more time before I die. I prayed for you. And now I know I'm coming home because you're here. Wow. And that resonates in my heart every day. There's not one day that goes by that John doesn't tell me he loves me and he appreciates me. Right. And, you know, he's great with the grandkids over the phone. He's, he's real hands-on, like, as much as he can be right, with the right, grands. Right. And he knows what's going on in our lives. And uh, good and bad. And he's always a wealth of spiritual information and sets me straight even before I came here today. Right, right. You know, right. He, he gets me back on track. Yeah. I lose it sometimes because it's difficult. Yeah. I hope to talk to him one day myself. Um, and you say that you know that he's coming home. What are some of the things that you guys are actively doing uh, trying to uh, get John exonerated? Well, of course, as you can see, we have done podcasts social media um we do facebook twitter um instagram georgetown i went to georgetown university a few years back and presented john's case to them to get them to take on the case there have been several professors law professors that have looked over his case and said man he's innocent as the day is long this is like one of the easiest cases to prove um we got a great attorney craig cooley who's a dna guru uh, who works for the Innocence Project out of New York, he immediately latched on to John's case. And so we've been fighting through the appeals process for DNA. Um, unfortunately, we did just lose that this week with the Supreme Court for Pennsylvania. Um, but we are still fighting. There's many, many reasons why John was wrongly convicted, not just based on the DNA. So. And there's plenty of witnesses out there that know the truth. And now that the police officers have all died or gone away. I was going to ask you that because you, you did a lot of uh, 
name dropping. And, yeah, they're they're um, they're gone. Right. They're gone, and anything that I said is facts. Right. It's factual, and it can be proven. Okay. So, the police officers are pretty much gone, dead, whatever. And now more and more people that know that they're dead are coming forward are reaching out to our team. We have a team called Bring Griffiths Home. Right. There are three students from Georgetown University that researched John's case and did a six-minute documentary. And if you go on bringbrookinshome.com, you can see it for yourself. This is what they put together about John's case. Right. Um, there's just, John has over 10,000 followers, supporters. For commutation, he had over 100 certificates of achievements and probably about 60 character letters from former exonerees, lawyers, directors, former employees of the prison. I mean, all walks of life of people. Uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman supports John. Yeah. 100%. I like that guy. Yeah, Uh, he's pretty awesome. He supports a lot of my views as well. Yeah, he's running for Senate. Yeah, so we should support him support him yeah definitely um you talk to john every day uh how does his spirit seem uh all these years later you know dan i'm sure it's a roller coaster but overall how is he feeling i will tell you that in all the time that i spent with him well since 2016 he's always been upbeat he's always been positive this last denial of commutation happened when Bucks County wrote a scathing five-page letter to the Board of Pardons denying John commutation. John had a 4-1 vote to be approved before the letter was written. They published the letter, they they put it in the newspaper, and it was the, the false narrative of what the police department said back then 30 years ago. I will just tell you, the letters full of inconsistencies and full of lies. And I'm saying that because it's fact. And soon you you will see, everyone will see just how much they lie. They will see to what great lengths they went to to hurt John and keep John in prison. Um, John's hurt right now. His spirit, yeah, his spirit's broken. Yeah. Because um, he deserved to come home. He was one of the most deserving men in that prison, in all of Pennsylvania's prison, to come home. And the Sec- Department of Secretary Wetzel, who runs the prison system, who oversees it, he told John, man, you've earned this. Do me a favor. When you get out, make sure you send me a, a video so I can keep the yoga and health and wellness uh, right, right. And John said that he would welcome the opportunity to go back into the prison and work with the prison right. to help those to still be able to yeah. deal with the PTSD and the traumas that they all face and right. the illnesses and the cancers and all of that. So no one's more deserving than John. So when he was denied, it devastated not only John. I had hundreds of people that reached out to me and were devastated. And now this latest thing. But do you yeah. know what John says? He's coming home, but this is not his way out. God has a plan. And we believe that when John Brookins comes home, he's going to come home the right way. He's not going to have to be on parole or probation. He's going to come home a free man. Right. And he's going to make such a difference in society. Right. And that's what he wants to do. He really wants to get out here. Now, do you talk about, like, when he does come home? And because 30 years is quite a long time. I don't think Apple was even a company. Uh, yeah. or, you know, it might have been a company, but they weren't making iPhones right. uh, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, does he, is he curious about how life is on the outside? Of course he is. John does a lot of reading. And believe it or not, there's times he knows, well, he knows a lot about technology just by reading more right. than I do. Right, 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 right. So he always stays abreast of things and he does a lot of reading. But he's looking forward to coming home. He wants to build a tiny house. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like a tiny house. Um, he wants to live in a tiny house, but he wants to get an RV and travel the world, travel the country. Right. Um, to meet, personally meet the supporters that we have. Um, but more importantly, he wants to pass on 
you know, his experience and to make a difference and to reach back and help those others that are in prison wrongly convicted. Because like I said, there's, there's thousands of people. Right. It's not just him. Yeah. That are deserving and don't belong in there. Right. So, is there anything about John's case or anything that you want our viewers to know uh, that we haven't touched on today? Because this, first of all, let me tell you from me, I'm very privileged that you would even sit down with me and share this story. Um, so, without me controlling what you're saying and feeding you the question, is there anything that you would like to say speaking from your heart? I would. One of the things that I would like to say that's very important is the ingredients of, there are many ingredients of a wrongful conviction. And one of the most important things that we could do to abolish wrongful convictions is to end police and prosecutorial misconduct and immunities. So, like George Floyd, okay? Police officers have immunities. Prosecutors have immunities, which means they can pretty much do whatever they want because they know that there's no punishment. They're not going to have to go to jail. Right. They're not going to. They're not going to lose their careers, their families, and we need to stop that. The number one thing is to to end that. But to get to that point, we need reform-minded district attorneys. We need everyone to vote, get to know the district attorney that's running in your area. Where do they stand on judicial reform? Do they believe in installing wrongful conviction units in their, within their departments? Because let's face it, Philadelphia is not the only area that has wrongful convictions. Every municipality has them, and the majority of them stem from the 80s and the 90s. So in order to get a hold of those things and to clean those things up, we have to first admit that they exist. And a district attorney who admits that, yes, these things do exist, let's clean it up. So let's expose it, let's strip it down, and let's clean it up, and let's start from ground zero. Yeah. And let's stop these things from happening. So Is I, there a power that be, what, what would you think is the main thing? Is it just politics? Uh, that is stopping judicial reform? Or do you see specific places, uh, the actual departments that are putting a halt to uh, changes? Well, the systemic racism that exists in many municipalities is still alive. So the, again, the district attorney that pushes back against the person that stands there and says, where do you stand on judicial reform? If you just ask them, will you install a conviction integrity unit? If they say no, we'll let the courts decide, you already know their position. If they say yes, we're gonna do this, we're gonna clean this up, and we're gonna really work hard to be in our in our communities deep and to help our families heal and help our wrongly convicted get out of prison. That's the difference. But systemic racism is a main factor and you only need to ask a district attorney that one question to know the answer. Yeah. Um, and we have that district attorney, Matt Weintraub, who doesn't believe in that. You know, he marches with the Black Lives Matter down in Bristol. He did, he marched. I give him credit. He's trying to work in, he's working to bring peace between the police and the community. Great, all of those things are great and anything else that you do is great, that he does is great. But the one thing that he fails to realize is don't put a don't turn a blind eye that these wrongful convictions have happened and they're sitting in prison. Yeah. Expose them, clean them up, and now we can talk. Yeah. We have a district attorney race going on right now. Matt Weintraub and Antonetta Stanku. I don't know much about Antonetta Stanku, but I know enough about Matt Weintraub right now that he denied DNA. DNA evidence that would clear my husband that will not have, the, the murder weapons will not have my husband's DNA on them. And nowadays, the testing that we have right now was not available 30 years ago. So even if we just wanna test it because now there's testing, if you in fact have the right person in prison, why not open up the book and say, here you go, we did the right thing here, here's the proof, go ahead and test it for yourself. 
The Innocence Project and Lieutenant Governor Fetterman agreed to pay for the testing so that the citizens of Bucks County don't have to. But instead, they want to fight. They want to keep fighting John. Right. And the, you, we all are paying for this. Right. He's already been in prison for, for 30 years, and it's cost the state over a million dollars to house a wrongly convicted man. And now they're still fighting. Right. Their salaries and so on. And is it political? Yes, it's very political. It's very political. I hope, in my heart of hearts, I believe that there's some good in Matt Weintraub because of the other things that he does. I wrote him a letter. I wanted to meet with him. Of course, I, I wasn't given that opportunity, but I would help facilitate any positive changes in Bucks County and use my husband's case to do that. Right. But they're not for that. And maybe someone else is pulling his strings. So therefore, that would be politics, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I, I would like to feel that his heart of hearts if he had the real say-so, that he would do the right thing. Right. Because right now, there's a murderer free. Okay. Every time a wrongly convicted person's in prison, yeah. there's a murderer free. So, what happened to the original person that um, allegedly killed uh, her mother? Right. Well, where is she at? She's in Florida, last we heard. Okay. She's been in Florida since 1991 or 1992. 1992. Okay. And that's all you know? That's all I know. Right. Um, it's really not all I know, but it's all I can say. And uh, all I can say is a leopard doesn't change their spots. Wow. So the same thing that was going on back then, 30 years ago, is still going on there. And right. the same John that was going on 30 years ago, only a more mature John, is sitting in. SEI Phoenix. Right. And how have you had contact with the family of this deceased person? I. Uh, and, I'm sorry. Sorry. And, and uh, do you know how they feel about your efforts uh, of getting John out of prison? I haven't had any contact because of the integrity of the case. I don't want to jeopardize the integrity of the right, case. Right, right. Um, I do know that I've, I've gotten wind that there are some that believe that Sharon murdered her mother in the family and then there's some that believe that John did right so it's another reason why the DNA should be tested this right. family is torn this family are the family members that are grieving that have grieved for this woman and to this day they really don't know who murdered their mother. They really don't know. Ricky doesn't know who murdered his grandmother. For 30 yeah. years. For 30 years. Yeah. So. That's a shame. Um, if someone wants to get in contact with you, uh, maybe there's somebody else that's going through this or someone that's interested in helping out uh, John, how could they get in contact? Um, they could reach out to me um, through email. Yeah. Um, I would say yoga, Y-O-G-A, guru, G-U-R-U, 526 at gmail.com. Is that to get in contact with John? That's to get in touch with me. Okay. Is there um, a way that we can get in contact with John? There is. Um, you can write John. Right. Um, it's through Smart Communications. If anyone wants to reach out to John, just send me an email because it's a long address that I can't recite right, from right. memory. Um, but there's a long address, and that that will be we could facilitate that for right. sure. And, and what about your social media handles? Okay, so I have bringbrookenshome.com, yes. which is the website. If they go to the website, that will take them to the address to write to John. That will take them to the other the Instagram page the Twitter page and the Facebook page. Right. There is a hotline number for anyone that may have information regarding this murder. Um, they may have seen something or if they were extorted by the police in any way or mistreated in any way back then, we would welcome their confidential call on the hotline. We have a team that fields these calls and returns the calls. They will keep them confidential. We're building this story, so to right. speak. And if, could I take a moment to look up the number? Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Um, 
really, I, I just wanted to say that I am honored uh, to have you on the podcast. I really am. Um, if I'm being frank, uh, this is my podcast is what we're like 30 episodes in something around there. Yeah. Um, so for you to have the confidence in me to tell your story uh, means a lot to me. So, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. <laughs> my, okay, let me say the phone number for, for the hotline is 813 okay. 444 9298. And, and that hotline is for any information on John's case. We'll have we'll give that to Jordan and he can put that at the end of the episode Thank as well. You, you can say it one more time. 813-444-9298. Also, tomorrow I'm going to be participating in an exoneration rally and I'll be participating in a few rallies. So anybody that does reach out to me, I would let them know. I'll start getting that on social media as to when I will be at certain functions in South Philadelphia tomorrow nice. um, at 12 o'clock and if anybody wants information on that it'll be on my social media pages cool well Karen Miss Karen Brookins I was going to say just Karen, <laughs> so just Karen <laughs> I really like I said I really appreciate you being on the show uh, thanks for coming on thank you and I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to talk about the most favorite person I'm in the world to me, That's John Brookings. Maybe so. one day I'll get a chance to talk to him. One day you one day. will. No All baby. right. That's the young black suburban. Young black and suburban. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. No problem. How was that? That was great. That was great. How long do you think we went? Uh, now I will tell you, if you ever want to branch out on this,